Today on Keep Classical Weird, an important conversation about a composer whose work seemed to run the risk of being forgotten, but has, thankfully, recently come back into the public discussion of classical music, Florence Price. I did not know what it was going to entail when I embarked on it. I think this is the case with a lot of involved journeys. We always have an idea of why we are entering into it and our expectations of how it will go. And sometimes beyond our control, it takes on a different life. Welcome, friends, to episode 17 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and today we're discussing the works of composer Florence Price. Florence Price was born in 1887 in Little Rock, Arkansas. She received a music degree at the New England Conservatory of Music and decided to move to Chicago in the 1920s to escape the Jim Crow laws of the Deep South. Her real leap into notoriety came in 1933, where her symphony in E minor, which had just won first prize in a composition competition, was premiered by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. This made Florence Price the first female African-American composer to have a work performed by a major symphony orchestra. She has countless works and arrangements credited to her. Four symphonies, two piano concertos, two violin concertos, choral works, piano works, organ works, chamber works. It's an enormous body of compositions for a name that might be unfamiliar, even among classically trained musicians. I totally agree with you in terms of where was she in our history books. This is my friend and fellow grad school comrade, Erjean Kong. She's a violin professor at the University of Arkansas and has been premiering Florence Price's second violin concerto with symphony orchestras all around the country, including here in Portland with the Portland Columbia Symphony. She was introduced to Florence Price by a colleague of hers looking to learn more about Arkansan artists. We had started scheduling and planning a Black Music Symposium for February in honor of Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And my colleague had decided at that time that he wanted to create it as a Florence Price Symposium. And because she had such variations on her compositions, you know, vocal works, piano works, um, you know, her being an organist and a pianist, and so much scholarship as well. Barbara Garvey Jackson is one of our emeritus professors, and she has written about Florence Price from the 1970s. My colleague who was creating the symposium said, she has several strings works. Would you be interested in being featured on them? And also, by the way, I need your help in contracting musicians for the <laughs> strings works. And so we did a tone poem with the school orchestra. We did um, her string quartet, her piano quartet. And I, I think that was basically it, actually. So it wasn't that full in terms of the the presentation of her strings works but that was enough for me to sort of think I want to learn more about this person. Being a professor in Florence Price's home state gave Urgene a lot of access to some really great resources. These were important as she was about to embark on learning pieces that didn't have standard recordings attached to them 
If classical violinists want to perform, let's say, the Tchaikovsky Concerto, they have dozens of world-class recordings to study and numerous historical resources to reference, making interpretation and representation of the composer a relatively uncomplicated job. When making a first recording of something where the composer is no longer living, the artist's responsibility turns to something called primary research, which meant Ergene would be speaking with a lot of historians to gain better insight. It was also an interesting realization as a performer to realize that what historians are interested in and what historians talk about are not what performers are interested in or what performers talk about, and that historians and performers, even though we're in this really small world, oftentimes are at odds with one another in terms of who they decide is persons of interest. And so when I spoke to historians about Florence Price, many of them already knew about her. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I've been reading about her. And so it, it was even more shocking and curious for me as a performer as to where and how this sort of bifurcation in a way sort of um, happened. I think all teachers can kind of maybe identify with this feeling that we feel the need to know everything, or at least to present that picture to our students. And certainly our students sometimes have that idea of us. And so even with Google and all these, you know, availability to look up information on the web, I think at universities, professors are still kind of seen as repositories for knowledge and information. And so it was embarrassing for me to realize that I knew nothing about this composer. And so part of it was, was I think, just a selfish or a self-centered or a self-driven initiative for me to, to know more about this huge gap in my music history. As a performer, at least for me, I was caught hanging in, in a uncomfortable zone where I felt I didn't really have the knowledge network to reconstruct primary research. I had never done primary research in that regard, and I have never done primary research as a performer. I guess it made me realize a lot of things. It made me realize how, in some ways, random history can be in terms of going back to why Florence Price was just excised from the history books. Okay. It made me realize what a responsibility is to reconstruct knowledge based on best guesses. It also made me realize that history oftentimes favors those who already have support networks during the time of their lives. So much of the problems with reconstructing Florence Price's manuscripts is that she didn't have an editor during her time. There was no one to advocate for her during her lifetime. And then upon her death, there was no one who really kind of took care of her estate. There weren't editors who worked with her during her lifetime who could then take care of her estate posthumously. It's so easy to be forgotten. I, I mean, I, I don't know, the majority of our lives perhaps are forgotten to history, but those who are remembered are definitely taken care of also during their lifetime. So it, it, to me, fueled the tragedy of her life in terms of the negligence and in terms of the battles that she had to constantly fight for legitimacy and for space. I found myself as a performer entering a much larger world than I ever thought I would. Maybe it seems like an overstatement, but I would say Florence Price has changed my life, both as a person and as a violinist and as a teacher. It's made me rethink a lot of issues about, as I was saying, the role of the performer. It's changed me as a player. On a simplistic level, I think it's made me more courageous, or it's forced me to be more courageous to make decisions, interpretive decisions, based on very little knowledge, actually. of I mean, I tried to do the best reconstructing 
history, but her surviving grandchildren are not musicians. Her home was sort of vandalized. Um, it was abandoned. And these were the, the manuscripts that were found in her abandoned home in Chicago. Wow. Everything is a reconstruction. Uh, and even her violin concerto, in fact, it was a draft. And for, for listeners who may be aware, her second violin concerto is only one movement, much like her piano concerto. But unlike her piano concerto, in the title, it, it just says violin concerto number two in D major. The piano concerto says concerto in one movement. Even in that, some violinists and historians have come to surmise is this really a one concerto movement? It's so short. It's only 15 minutes. Was there supposed to be a second or third movement like her first concerto, which which has the full traditional three movement structure for a concerto? And I did even talk to a violinist who said, you know, I, I thought about recording it, but I didn't because I assumed it was incomplete. The randomness in history that Ergene referred to is pervasive. The way these manuscripts ended up at the university library, for example, was due to a stroke of luck with some inquisitive people. The sheet music or just all of the resources came in two installments. The first installment was in the late 70s with Florence Price's eldest daughter. And it was believed at the time that that donation was comprehensive. But then in the early 2000s, there was a couple who came to purchase Florence Price's abandoned home in Chicago in the Chicago suburbs. And upon their purchase, because it was abandoned for, for many decades, uh, a tree had fallen through the roof and there was a lot of damage to the, to the house. There were basically half of Florence Price's belongings still in the house. And some of it, like her piano, for example, were stolen and still it's unknown where it is. But luckily this couple, instead of trashing all of the sheet music, decided to do a little bit of investigation to see if this would be interesting to anybody. And eventually the inquiry made its way into University of Arkansas Special uh, Collections. And so the library then purchased the remainder of her sheet music and oh. then went through the extensive process of doing all the archiving and the preservation work, which I'm not familiar with, but for example, dealing with mold damage on, on the paper, cataloging it, which is still, I don't think, comprehensively cataloged, and there are still pages missing for many of her compositions. But a lot of her strings works were in this collection. Her violin concerto, for example, was written a year before her death. But, so, Oh, really? Yes, and so it's a it's a rather mature work, but also it, it's something that she wouldn't have had time to, for example, workshop with musicians, and which also then fuels the, the, the further speculation that it was incomplete. Our conversation took a great and interesting turn here, as this experience opened Urgene up to something that's a fairly new landscape in the world of classical music, and one we're all presently trying to navigate, the concept of musical allyship. For me, it was a lot more involved than I thought it would be. It was a lot more emotional than I thought it would be. Maybe that seems obvious. Music is already so emotional. But the research component of it, to me, I expected it to be much more cerebral, where you're just counting measures and you're doing music theory and you're just trying to construct stuff. You know, it's not too much of an emotional attachment to just logistical problems. And I would even say the thing that I didn't anticipate was how it would affect me personally, apart from, you know, my identity as a teacher or a violinist. I think just as a person, it has made me 
I mean, especially now as well in, in the age of COVID twenty and George Floyd twenty twenty. I think um, it has made me really look back on my own life and think about things. I suppose through a racial consciousness that I think I was very afraid to to confront, and I think that maybe I conveniently thought really didn't exist for me. I think I was very literal in the beginning to say, well, I did not grow up in the South, so these issues don't affect me. I'm not a Black woman, so, and I'm not claiming to obviously know what it means to be a Black woman, so therefore I have this distance that goes both ways, where I can sort of say, yes, I'm a person of color, but I'm also not trying to appropriate Black culture. I'm not even claiming that I understand it, but I am trying to be a musical ally, but I, I, I realized I never really thought very comprehensively about what a musical ally would, what that would mean and what that would involve. And I think at least for me, it involves first serious self-reflection and that advocacy for others necessitates actually a, a self-advocacy um, in the very beginning. And how could I really advocate for a composer or for someone or for a group if I couldn't even really advocate for myself and if I didn't even really know my own history in a way. And it's it's also made me realize that music, which I had always seen as insular and very elitist, although I still see that, I can see the possibilities of how it can be transformed. And to me, that's so empowering because again, I don't I don't want to speak for other violinists, but there have been so many times where I have felt that I lead a double life, where I, I play my Tchaikovsky concerto and I talk about Western Europe, you know, in the 1750s. And maybe I yell at my students for not practicing enough. But then when, once the violin goes back into the case, I start thinking about all these sort of social issues and what advocacy for me might mean and what political activism would mean. And obviously, for many people, it can it can appear very active. And for many people, it can be very quiet and in, in the background. And, you know, what kind of activist and citizen would I want to be? In the past, to be honest with you, I never saw violin as being a part of that. Writing to your representatives, you know, picketing at, at sort of peaceful protests. I, there's never, there was never a place where violin could enter that picture. And what you just said, it seems like the historian, the role of the historian can take on a lot of this advocacy just by nature of what they do. Yes. And the performer, by nature of putting it out there to be kind of actively consumed in the performance sphere, somehow that seems to carry a lot more responsibility and a lot more yes. weight. So I think this is my question is that did you find when you did, when the time came that you did go out, because you performed this in several cities, right? Right, So when, right. when you found that you went on this, on this tour and performed this in, with all these orchestras, did you feel like you had the support of the historian community kind of pushing you forward? Or did you feel like you kind of had to like machete your way through that world on your own? Well, it's interesting. As you know, Casey, a lot of these performances um, are, are artists parachuting into communities. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't have too much of a chance to engage deeply with some of these communities. It, it basically involved more of a unilateral 
relationship where I would come in, try to give my sense of the work that I'm doing, the aspirations that I have, the work that I have done, which would culminate into a performance. And like all performances, you never really know what the audience takes away from it. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways a very public, but also a very private experience where unless you interview every single audience member or take a survey, it's hard to know what their ultimate takeaway is. And I would hope, I suppose, that at the very least, it sparked interest. But all of that to say, I was not able to have the luxury of involved conversations with historians. I did have some historians come and congratulate me backstage. But as you know, those things can never be involved conversations. They're just five seconds uh, and very scattered and fragmented. Mostly they were in Little Rock because there was already a community of people who had been working on, you know, her life and reconstructing her history. Many of them are also sort of scholar artists in a way. And I think that's also an interesting hyphenated identity, which is it makes so much sense to marry the two. But the way that a lot of the training in our music schools are fashioned, it makes hyper-specialization the norm which makes right. you choose. Right. You're either the, the egghead academic type who unfortunately gets pegged as someone who cannot play their instrument because they're spending all the time writing and thinking and producing published works, or you're the musician who's practicing all these hours and therefore you're not reading on all these sort of socioeconomic context. And so when you're asked to actually speak about the music, you may not have any clue, even if you can play 20,000 notes in, you know, two seconds or something, and it's very flashy. And so I feel like that divide between the communities is quite old. I'm hoping that this is also an opportunity for a lot of music schools to reconsider their curricula. There's a lot of people considering, obviously, a revamping of the curricula to incorporate anti-racist curricula. And maybe this is a great time, as we're considering anti-racist curricula, to also rethink what is the role of the modern musician as they come out in the genre of classical music? Urgene had some more wonderful things to say about allyship, the discovery process of primary research, and more thoughts on hyphenated identity. Our entire conversation will be available very soon on the Keep Classical Weird Patreon, so keep an eye out if you're a subscriber. And that's our show for today. My deepest thanks to Urgene Kong from the University of Arkansas. We had not caught up since grad school, and it was wonderful just to have a fascinating conversation. Our theme music you're hearing is by Thomas Barber. Check out his stuff at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. We'll be back next week with the exciting conclusion to the craziest opera tournament, so make sure you tune in. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird.